Hey, y'all. I'm Erin Haynes, the host of The Amendment, a brand new weekly podcast on gender, politics, and power, brought to you by the 19th News and Wonder Media Network. You've probably heard the news that this election year, our democracy is at stake. On The Amendment, I'm breaking down what that actually means, specifically for the marginalized folks who depend on our democracy the most. This is a show that dives past the headlines and gets clear on the unfinished work of our democracy. Listen to The Amendment now, wherever you get your podcasts. In 2018, Naomi Powers called 911 in Spanaway, Washington, because her boyfriend, Billy Langfit, was suffering a mental health crisis. Langfit, a 28-year-old, had just lost his job, and his grandfather had died recently as well. Powers told dispatchers that Langfit needed psychiatric assistance. He'd grabbed at the wheel of her vehicle while she was driving, and he'd jumped out the passenger side window after she'd parked. At one point in the call, Powers said that Langfit had a knife. But later in the call, she told dispatchers that she'd taken the knife from him and that she didn't need medical attention herself. Langfit began running through the streets, yelling and smacking parked vehicles. Police arrived at the scene to assess the situation. Langfit was unarmed, but due to confusion and miscommunication, officers believed he was still wielding a knife. Langfit, in his delirium, jumped into the driver's side window of a parked police car and was promptly shot dead by a deputy who was standing on the street. This tragedy took place just as advocates in Washington state were pushing for a ballot measure to make it easier for the public to hold officers accountable for the fatal shooting of unarmed citizens. People say to me, you gotta be crazy. How can you sing in times like these? Don't you read the news? Don't you know the score? How can you sing when so many others grieve? By way of a reply, I say a fool such as I who sees his song as somewhere to begin. This is Brave New Words, and I'm Anat Shanker Osorio. As a communications consultant working with advocates for human rights, equality, and justice, I believe the job of a good message isn't to say what's popular. It's to make popular what we need said. I examine people's underlying assumptions and perceptions in order to understand why certain messages resonate where others falter. And now, with the help of some of the world's boldest, most strategic, and accomplished campaigners, I'm exploring the words that have won us progressive victories. These six episodes can provide a playbook for how to engage our base, persuade the middle, and reveal the opposition for the outliers they are. So let's step back a bit. From 2006 to 2014, 213 people were killed by police in Washington. Only one officer was charged with a crime, and he was subsequently acquitted. The reason for that? The state's standard for justifiable use of deadly force by law enforcement was one of the most permissive in America. Amnesty International called it the worst in the nation. That's Heather Villanueva, Deputy Director at Equitable Democracy and Campaign Manager for De-Escalate Washington. 
because it required prosecutors to prove that there was malice in the heart of the officer if they uh, were to kill a person or kill a subject. And it's basically impossible to prove malice or what's in someone's heart at the time of an action. And so it was really serving as a de facto immunity and making it very difficult for communities to trust investigations um, and things like that when there was a shooting and they were investigated. That with malice clause has long been a point of controversy, as Washington was the only state with such a subjective, stringent burden of proof. And as a result, no police officer in Washington state had ever been convicted of a wrongful death. Additionally, according to a study by the Washington Post, one-third of those killed by police in the state were found to be experiencing a mental health crisis at the time. Police shootings also disproportionately affected Black, Latinx, Native American, and LGBTQ people, as well as people in poverty. So advocates formed an organization called De-Escalate Washington with the express purpose of changing the law. And they found, very quickly, that there was wide support for their ballot measure, called I-940. Then, in a week of complicated state political wrangling, things turned a corner. So we sat down, community and law enforcement, and we ended up having, you know, having these sessions where we listened to each other and talked about the policy. And what actually came out of it was a consensus set of amendments that both law enforcement agreed to and community felt that it did not compromise any part or spirit of the law that we were trying to change. And so what happened at the end of the legislature something very unconventional is that law enforcement, lobbyists, and uh, community organizations and our lobbyists were working together and community activists were working together to pass this consensus legislation. For a while, it looked like I-940 could become law without a referendum. But in the end, after a lot of back and forth involving the legislature and the state Supreme Court, I-940 was sent directly to voters as a ballot initiative after all. So all of a sudden, uh, you know, the De-Escalate Washington Coalition is facing a ballot initiative, uh, basically a, a campaign to run in two months from start to finish. That's Jack Sorensen, communications director for De-Escalate Washington, the Yes on 940 campaign. Not only did De-Escalate have just two months to run a ballot campaign, it was on an incredibly difficult topic, police reform. First of all, in just sort of, um, you know, strategic political communication, law enforcement officers are really trusted validators uh, among the community. Their voice and their opinion carries a lot of respect. And so when I think whenever you're talking about um, making policing better, there is inherently a knee-jerk reaction from a lot of folks, especially a lot of moderate folks, that at the end of the day, you know, we really wanted to, you know, focus on. Uh, second of all, I think we really faced the effects of a narrative that for too long has presented a false choice to voters, that you're either on the side of law enforcement, or you are on the side of impacted communities. And that's a narrative that, you know, was really an uphill battle for us, uh, I think, to to take on and try and change that narrative, especially in two months. Two months is a very short amount of time to to not just convince people to vote yes, but to to convince people that they don't have to prescribe to that rhetoric and they should vote yes. That was a large focus of our messaging work was saying, um, 
hey, this is this is a false choice. You don't have to decide between law enforcement and impacted communities. You can vote yes on Initiative 940 to both ensure that law enforcement have the training and the tools they need and to save lives, particularly among the most vulnerable members of our communities. Heather agreed, bringing up even more challenges about messaging on police reform. One of them is that we're really dealing with people who have had very deep trauma. There are family members who have lost their loved ones, their sons, their daughters, their partners, you know, their aunties, their uncles, their cousins. It's it's, uh, heart-wrenching, really. And it's really difficult. You really have to figure out how to thread that line between telling the stories of family members without tokenizing them, right? We really felt strongly during the campaign that we wanted to center the experience of the people who are directly affected. Um, but at the same time, we didn't want to engage in this fetishization of, you know, of people's trauma. Be like, look at these sad brown people. They're so sad. Vote for this. We really had to figure out how to tell folks' stories in a really authentic way and in a way that left people feeling that there was something that they could do. And I think the other really challenging thing around messaging around the subject of police reform is that the opposition will use racist dog whistles uh, to, you know, to signal to voters where they should stand on this uh, without explicitly saying, uh, you know, using racist terms. And so we had to figure out how we were going to deal with that. And if you if you were to encapsulate what you would say, the yes side, the de-escalate campaign, what's what's the encapsulation of the message you ended up going with? Uh, you know, we talked about we talked about prevention and we talked about um, unity, right? So we we talked about how this is a measure to save lives and prevent tragedies from actually happening. And not only that, we know that everybody is harmed when there is a, when there's a fatal incident, right? Law enforcement also is harmed. No officer goes into law enforcement because they want to kill someone, right? And so I think this sort of like extension of compassion um, that everybody involved um, is human uh, was was a part of our message. And we also talked about how this is about bringing our communities together. One of our early taglines was building bridges between communities and police. And sometimes we, you know, we just talked about the humanity of both sides and how this is something that where we could really bring folks together because. One of their other opposition messages was that law enforcement was united against 940, which was completely untrue because we actually had former police chiefs. uh, We had the Black Law Enforcement Association of Washington. um, We had very, you know, we had law enforcement who was on our side. And so it it freed people up, basically. And this is something that we kind of saw in our polling. Uh, It freed people up to vote their conscience when they knew that law enforcement wasn't just on one side of the issue, that there were reasonable heads that were saying, you know what, this is the time for uh, for a little bit of reform. This is a time to build community trust. Deescalate Washington was also creative about the ads they ran, including one which featured a former Seattle police chief and a woman whose sister had been shot and killed by police. Every day, Jim asks, is this the day I get into a dangerous situation I haven't been trained for? At the end of a long day, Monica would like to call her sister Charlena, but she cannot. Monica's sister was shot and killed by a police officer. I was not there, but I know that every cop should be trained to de-escalate conflict. The Initiative 940 gives police officers proper training to deal with people in a mental health crisis. Say yes on 940. 
Yeah. So um, this is, I, I actually really um, am proud of this because I feel like I had an important role in it. So um, just to like go way back um, and my own perspective on this, uh, everybody is hurt when somebody is killed, both the people who lost someone and obviously the person who was killed, um, but also the people who have to do the the killing part of it, right? And so there's humanity on both sides. And so when it came time to think about the ad, we knew that we wanted, you know, uh, Jack Sorensen, our communications uh, director, uh, he, you know, he recommended that we have both, uh, if we have a 30-second spot, that we have both a law enforcement person and a community member, that we didn't have to choose, you know, which one would be in the 30-second ad, that we have both. And I was like, well, instead of having just talking heads, why don't we actually just show the day-to-day of these people getting ready for work and what, what that would, what, you know, just show that folks are human and everybody starts their day as a human. Of course, there was an opposition to 940 as well, as we'll hear Jack explain. There were law enforcement groups that, um, you know, supported the version that the legislature passed and respectfully opposed the version on the ballot. And then there were uh, other law enforcement groups, I would say the the primary opposition that, you know, were in almost every uh, uh, media story, they were just across the board, no. I mean, they made it very clear. Um, their main spokesperson during a televised debate said that neither he nor his organization would ever support anything that looked like Initiative 940. But the standard messages that they, uh, you know, used during the campaign were effectively, um, you know, the good old fashioned, this is too complicated, voters shouldn't have a say on this, you know, tried to claim that Initiative 940 would make it easy to prosecute law enforcement officers, which is just... Uh, completely false. Um, But ultimately, you know, I think it's important to focus on why that message is effective. Because it, you know, it wasn't their most effective opposition message because it was rooted in any sense of truth. It was their most effective opposition message because it called upon those knee-jerk scare tactics and divisive rhetoric that have really been the hallmark of this conversation, both at a national level and at a state level. Again, presenting that false choice that you're either with police or you're against them. Um, And that's really what we focused on. Instead of, you know, getting down in the dirt Uh, with our opposition about, you know, well, how easy or possible does this make it to prosecute law enforcement officers? We really responded to that, but then dismissed it fairly quickly and said, you know, more importantly, this is about uh, saying no to and rejecting that divisive community versus police narrative. Um, You know, we, we, very loudly and clearly said no to harmful rhetoric that's meant to divide us by our background, divide us by our politics, and divide us by our race, or make this an issue of community members versus police, or make this an issue of black people versus white people. Um, We said people of all races support better policing, and police officers of all races strive to protect and serve their communities. And with Initiative 940, you could both support police and support better policing by voting yes. One of the hardest parts of campaign messaging is just breaking a signal through the noise. 
A message is like a baton that has to be passed from person to person to person, especially when you're running on a grassroots budget. If the message gets dropped anywhere along the way, it doesn't get to the audience. In short, if your words don't spread, they don't work. So this requires building the biggest possible coalition or choir to sing from the same songbook, to practice message discipline, and to actively dissuade opposition messages from breaking through. Someone who knows all about this is one of the central figures of the powerful, effective coalition behind 940, Andre Taylor. Andre founded the organization Not This Time after his brother Shay was shot and killed by police in Seattle in 2016. And in order to have that effective, singular choir, Andre pursued what, for many advocates for police reform, is totally unthinkable. He built bridges to law enforcement. It was a strategy that I had when I first came back. Um, I realized around the country, um, when these incidents happen in our communities, that there is an immediate reaction to it. And a lot of times those reactions are not positive. Sometimes they can be extremely violent. And then there's no focus on the initial killing. All the killing now is focused on what the community is doing because of the killing. And then the narrative is lost. So I decided that in this uh, uh, this movement that not only would I not be, but I would teach others not to be uh, reactionary. We, w- we weren't going to be reactionary. We would be responsive. And so the first week that I came back to Seattle, I sat down with the chief of police, Kathleen O'Toole at the time, and... Um, And I told her, you know, I know that I can't bring my little brother Shay back, but I am still willing to work with you so that we can reduce the incidences of violence in our communities. And that shocked her because she was waiting for and anticipating a reaction from me. But when she got the response, what that did is that allowed us to maintain the narrative and then also pressure law enforcement to have to step up to the table. Because at that point, they're thinking like, this, we just killed this guy's brother, and now he's talking about he still wants to work with us. So they have to step up at the table. We created a different type of pressure. So with the meetings, uh, with Not This Time, we decided to give weekly community meetings. Every single week, and we still do it to this day. Because we were going to use that meeting as a place to bring people together uh, with that same strategy of controlling the narrative, bringing all people together, bringing law enforcement together, bringing politicians together into a safe place. And there were certain guidelines that I would that I would have. And the most important guideline that made people feel comfortable to come to this community meeting is that I will never allow any disrespect. This is not a place or a space for disrespect. If you come in for disrespect, then we would we would remove you and ask you to leave. Right. But but these if you're coming to ask the tough questions of these professionals or politicians, then that's okay. These are professionals. They can handle the tough questions. But if it's disrespectful, then this is not a space that you want to be disrespectful and and we will not have it there. So then everybody wanted to come from Congressman Adam Smith, from attorneys, chief of polices, from police chiefs and city council members. Everybody felt wonderful to come into this space where there was an education going on that that wasn't happening no other no other place and there was a safe a place of safety where we can come together and build and not be afraid to talk about our differences because this would be a place in safety to talk about those differences because we were all coming from a place of education and learning and building but of course there were challenges building and maintaining this coalition 
There were great issues there. I mean, they were some things that transpired that had the potential of breaking up the coalition, you know, but you have to name that thing. It's important that when you're coalition building that first you you uh, you are expressing to everybody that everybody's here. You have to believe that their intentions are pure to be here for the objective, for the cause. Right. Not for no individual person, not for me, not for them, not for the cause. If we elevate the cause above our personal pain or our personal thought process, then we can all come bring 110 percent to the cause. And as long as the cause kept being elevated, then things go well. But when people's personal agenda got in the way, things would automatically go bad. And you have to remind people what's more important. You're not more important than me. I'm not more important to you, even though my community might be more impacted. Right. And you might not understand from a community perspective, you know, how we feel uh, from being people in this country that have faced this horror for so many years. Let me express that to you, why I feel the way that I feel. But you got to name that thing. You can't be in a room with organizations not naming the thing, being afraid to, to name the thing. But you got to create the space now. You got to create the space and saying, listen, this is what we are about. I believe you're here because you want to see change along with me. Right. So then that gives an individual the opportunity to express how they truly feel without feeling attacked by expressing that. Right. Then other people in the room can express to them information that might potentially help them see things differently. You don't know. But if you can't have the conversation because people are fearful of what they say and fearful of being attacked and you're not taking into consideration, people are at the table because they want the same objective that you want. Now, Andre isn't just doing this incredibly challenging work, contending with pushback, building bridges to law enforcement. He's doing it in the midst of the deepest, up-close and personal experience with the problem, as a survivor of the police violence that left him without his brother. When we brought Not This Time together, one of the primary reasons is because when my brother got killed, we didn't know where to go. There was no place to go. There was no support anywhere for family members that have lost a loved one to police violence. And so I said to myself, if I could help it, not another family in sight will ever have to go through what my family went through. And so when probably the most publicized shooting in our state, the Charlene Allow shooting, a pregnant mother of four killed in front of her three children, called in police for help because of a burglary and she ended up being killed. Their family called us and and other families as well. It made me feel good to be in to be able to be in a place that we could go to them and put a legal team immediately around them and then put support of other family members that had gone through the same process around them and then tell them, listen, we've been here. You can't grieve and fight at the same time. That is almost impossible to destroy you. So you grieve. Let us fight for you. And when you guys are ready, we have a platform for you to come tell your story. But right now we want to cover you in your grieving point and let you know that Everything else around you, we know there's kids. We're going to we're going to make sure that we can have food and, and, and things for the kids. Uh, and we're going to make sure that there's people there, a legal team for you to talk to about those frustrations and counselors like us and other family members that had gone through this process. And so I wasn't able to grieve, but it became so much bigger than my brother, my own personal grief. Right. And and 
being able to lift other families, it was hard in two ways. And it, it was good and it was hard. The hard thing was every time I encountered a family that had gone through a police shooting, it made me revert back to my brother's shooting. That was tough getting through that. But the joy of seeing other family members in my same place, going to other family members, sacrificing to help them was the most and is the most beautiful thing that I've ever seen in my life. And that if that don't give you the fortitude to keep pushing forward, no one can. Nothing can. On November 6, 2018, I-940 passed with 59.6% of the vote. Finally, police reform would take place in Washington state. So, Heather, what was running through your mind when you found out you won? Um, I guess just, you know, just disbelief um, that we had done something so so great. And um, I remember I was in the basement of the place that we were celebrating and upstairs was a whole host of community members and family members who were affected. And there was just stomping and laughing and crying and music. And I remember running up the stairs and just seeing everybody celebrating. And it was it was just really powerful. So um, to have communities who are so used to being disenfranchised that it just feels like a part of our reality, you know, you know, people of color, limited English speakers, immigrants and refugees, LGBTQ people, like to have us have a win like this was amazing. People often ask, how did you guys do it? They ask me all the time. I said, this might seem really corny, but it took every single one of us from every different background, every uh, racial component. It took all of us, literally all of us did this work. The power of the stories of the families that brought forth, that connected all people together because every uh, uh, race had an incident of police violence, white, black, native, Latino, whatever. All of us experienced the same thing. And those voices that my organization ultimately put to the forefront of the movement is the thing that brought all people together. Yeah, it was absolutely amazing. It might be tempting to look at 940's impressive margins on Election Day and think police reform is easy to pass, especially right now with unprecedented public awareness to the unjustified police violence and misconduct in so many places. But just last year, 58 percent of voters in deep blue San Francisco voted down a measure regulating the use of tasers by police officers. And in 2016, a measure in New Mexico to allow for local citizen police review boards failed to even make it onto the ballot. And it's no wonder. Issues of safety, of security, of respect for people with the authority of a uniform are ripe for the kind of fear-based messaging and deliberate race-based division the right-wing practices to incredible effect. In order to not just confront this issue— but sustain interest in and create majority support for changing the status quo, our messaging has to go beyond showcasing the repeated devastating horrors of allowing police to act with impunity. And it has to lean into, not sweep aside or remain silent about, how racial division and deep-seated prejudice is at the very core of this issue. Yes on 940 intentionally applied the race-class narrative research we've discussed in other episodes to profile how this issue affects black and brown community members, as well as people struggling to make ends meet or struggling with mental illness. 
and to connect this reality to how this is actually bad for all of us, no matter what we look like or what our zip code. As cities, counties, and states continue to push for these long overdue measures, it seems wise to heed and apply the lessons from Yes on 940. Center the experiences and voices of those most affected. Speak forthrightly to race and how it's been used as a wedge to divide us. And reject the narrative that making meaningful changes to how police operate is somehow anti-law enforcement. I'm Anat Shinker Osorio. Brave New Words is produced by Western Sound for ASO Communications. Our theme song is Somewhere to Begin by T.R. Ritchie. To learn more about our interviewees and see photos of the campaign in action, visit bravenewwordspod.com. And please subscribe to this podcast, rate it wherever you listen, and spread the word. A song is somewhere to begin To search for something worth believing in If changes are to come There are things that must be done And a song is somewhere to begin